What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode number 75 of Trail Tales. My name is Kyle O'Grady. I'm a thru hiker, I am a peak bagger, and every single week on this show, I chat with another thru hiker, another peak bagger, and just a bunch of hiking nerds. We're all just hiking nerds around here. And uh, I'm back. I guess I, I just said every single week, but last week, missed an episode. Gotta be honest, I've been moving and um, setting everything up in a new place. In fact, if this sounds different right now, that's because I literally haven't even had a chance to set up my microphone stand yet. I'm, I'm just holding it in front of my face like an idiot, so hopefully it sounds okay. I can guarantee you that the episode sounds okay and that it is also super, super interesting. Joe Biasi is my guest this week. He thru-hiked the Appalachian Trail, and he also does quite a bit of backpacking for his job. We talk about all of that stuff, and I gotta say, the second half of this episode, it's a little bit sad. It's a little bit depressing. I still think you should listen to it. Um, I think there's value there, but Joe kind of had a tough time on his Appalachian Trail thru-hike, and he was very candid and honest about it. He, he didn't hold anything back, and so just, I guess I don't want to call it a warning, but just a heads up. It is a little bit sad. Everything turns out okay in the end. He finishes the trail, but it's a little bit different than some of the more positive stories that tend to get told on Trail Tales. But he did finish off the episode by telling a pretty funny story, something that happened to him on the AT. So it's not all bad. It was a really interesting conversation. We kind of went all over the place, tons of different topics here. So I'm really stoked on it. Joe, when you hear this, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to get into this in just a second. First, let me do my plugs. You know, the Instagram, at TrailTalesPod. My Instagram is at KyleHatesHiking. Go check out my YouTube channel as well, KyleHatesHiking on YouTube. And the last thing I want to say real quick here is a huge shout out to Sawyer Products for sponsoring this episode of Trail Tales. All of Sawyer's products are super awesome, but I'm actually going to take a second to talk about my favorite Sawyer product, which is their water filters. For me in particular, it's the Squeeze water filter. And it's pretty obvious why these filters rule if you just kind of look at it on the surface, right? They're super small. They're super lightweight, only three ounces. You guys know I love to save weight when I'm backpacking. They're super easy to use. But honestly, I didn't really know that much about them before I started working with Sawyer. And it turns out the filters aren't just good on the surface, but the technology behind them is actually really, really solid as well. Sawyer's filters use something called hollow fiber membrane technology, and there was actually an independent study conducted that proved Sawyer's filters to be 75% stronger than other hollow fiber membrane filters on the market, which is really, really cool. Sawyer's filters remove 99.99999% of all bacteria. That's that's five nines there. And this one's a little bit easier, 100% of microplastics. So you know this stuff is gonna keep you safe out on the trail. And if you're still not convinced for some reason, just know that Sawyer's filters are tested three times each during the manufacturing process to ensure that they all meet Sawyer's high standard by the time they're filtering your water. Guys, I've been using Sawyer's filters for years and years on the trail. I used them long before they were a sponsor on this program, and honestly, I'm probably going to be using them long after they decide to ditch me as well. So go check out Sawyer.com for more information, or honestly, you can pick up one of their filters in just about any outfit, or at least the ones that I've seen. So they're super easy to get your hands on. You should definitely go check out their filters if you haven't already. Thank you so much to Sawyer for sponsoring this episode, and with that said, 
Let's get into it, episode number 76. I think I said 75 at the beginning of this introduction. I'm just gonna leave it. 76 <laughs> with Joe Biasi, Appalachian Trail class of 2015. Joe Biasi, what's up, man? Not much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for reaching out. Um, Icarus is your trail name. I got that right, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. For everybody listening, first of all, before we introduce Joe, if you are someone who wants to be a guest on the show and you like reach out to me, you should definitely follow Joe's example. He he not only like you know told me what his hiking experience was and stuff like that, but he also gave me like a couple like subject points that we could cover in the episode, which makes my life very easy because then I don't basically I just don't have to pry anymore, which I guess it doesn't make it that much easier, but it was helpful. So Joe, thank you very much for doing that, dude. As as far as uh, what those things we're going to potentially cover in the episode are, well, Joe is not only a through hiker, he through hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2015, but he also does quite a bit of backpacking for his job, which I'm very curious to hear about. And um, yeah, again, going back to the Appalachian Trail, and <laughs> dude, in your email, you were like, <laughs> you basically made it sound like you had a terrible experience through hiking the Appalachian Trail, which I, I kind of did, which and is that's not a perspective you hear often. Exactly, exactly. So that's something pretty unique. So we're going to talk about what went wrong and, um, you know, what people can take away from that and hopefully not have a terrible experience. So those are the things we're going to cover and just whatever else comes up but before i get too far in dude why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself tell everybody who you are and what you've hiked and all that good stuff yeah so my name is joe biasi trail name icarus i through hiked the at in 2015 as you said and these days i'm a professional geologist so that means i study the earth how the earth works and i really like rocks in particular i'm really a rock guy so <laughs> big, big rock guy Big rock guy. The bigger the rock, the better the rock. But all the rocks are pretty great, <laughs> quite dope. frankly. And so that's basically the job I have that allows me to backpack. So I don't backpack, you know, 24-7 or anything like that. But one or two months out of the year, normally every summer, I spend that basically outside. Some of that's backpacking. Some of that is other various hiking. And since you're backpacking for a job, you kind of have to approach it way differently, and I think we can get into that. Yeah, man. But And maybe we can get into how some of your listeners could possibly get a job backpacking as well. That's always fun yeah, to talk about. Yeah, dude, that'd be really yeah. cool. Well, yeah. since we're since we're already going in that direction, like, uh, why don't you why don't you tell everybody? Like, well, actually, no, 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 no. Let's back up here, Kyle. Um, it's probably <laughs> be best to explain in more detail what your job actually is before I start getting people to go do the job. So, yeah you know geology that's yeah. something i learned about in high school but i don't really know very much beyond that beyond the rocks i guess so um more specifically and and i i really want to know about the parts the the parts of your job that allow you to backpack you know to do them so so can you just talk about that a little bit yeah so most of my backpacking part of my job is field work so that basically means that I'm going out into nature somewhere, somewhere with a lot of rocks, and I'm trying to study them. So that might be making a map of where they are, what they are, how they relate to each other, or collecting lots of samples or things like that. And 
that can take me basically all over the world depending on the problem that I'm working on or something like that. Sometimes it's also to find resources like gold or chrome or oil or something like that. But that's the part of the job that gets me outside. Then the rest of the year I'm in a lab basically analyzing samples, writing papers, stuff like that. Gotcha, man. Gotcha. So how much, like, I think your email, you said something like 50-ish, you know, roughly nights, you know, for work, you're actually like backpacking. That's, I just think that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've only have the AT through hike. That's 2000 miles. I trained maybe another thousand miles before the AT, but then since then I've got another 2000 miles, at least just from work basically. So getting paid to and then I also backpack for fun, too. It's not like I only do this for work, and that's the only reason I'm out there. I like to go out backpacking just on the weekends or some longer trips, too. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, what does, like, a? I guess it's, it's going to be hard to generalize too much because I'm sure every day is different, but, like, what yeah. does an actual day on the trail when you're doing it for work look like? So, honestly, the things that I'm curious about are the gear that you're carrying, like I'm assuming you're carrying different gear and and like the mileage, the places you're going, whether it's on trail, off trail, things like that. So um, I just asked you like fucking five different questions there in one. Well, we can cover it all, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. So let's start with gear, right? So my plan in any given trip is normally to like collect a lot of rocks. And so what (laughs) I carry is a full ultralight kit with two big exceptions. One is the pack. I have the biggest, beefiest, heaviest pack that I can buy, and that's the pack I bring with an otherwise ultralight kit, (laughs) right? So the pack weighs like seven pounds, and the rest of the gear weighs seven pounds. And that's because you're carrying on the way out probably 80 to 100 pounds of rocks. Damn, man. Yeah, so like a DCF pack is not going to cut it. It's just going to get ripped to shreds. I was going to say, I can't imagine someone with like a Z-Packs pack and then like... (laughs) freaking pounds and pounds of rocks by the end of the trip yeah you know occasionally i'll pass uh an ultralighter with a really light pack and they'll say yo you could save five pounds by switching to this and i'm like you got no idea dude. you'd save 20 pounds by getting rid of all these fucking rocks on my back yeah i could save 80 pounds by getting a new job right but <laughs> and then the other big exception is you have to carry some extra gear while you're out there so a whole lot more maps some compasses a lot of hammers and chisels. Like sometimes I'll bring a 12-pound sledge oh, backpacking wow. with me, things like that. So the normal camping gear, I try and keep as light as possible because, you know, every every pound does count, even if it's 80 pounds on the way out or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the story with gear. Uh, for Then the actual philosophy for how you do the hike is totally different. So most people, they go out and they do a backpacking trip and they've got a destination in mind or a summit in mind or something like that. And that's not how I do it for work at all. You're out there to observe. You're out there to like view the natural world around you, write down what you see, make these observations. You're not, you don't have a goal. You don't have a destination in mind while you're out there. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, I think a really overlooked part of backpacking these days is a lot of people, I feel like we've lost why we go out and do backpacking in the first place. Like a lot of people say they do it for the exercise and there's other ways to exercise. And some people say you can get out there, you're getting out there to get away from it all. Well, you can fly to Vegas and get away from it all, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, I think we're really out there is for the combination 
of the exercise, the isolation, and the nature. The nature is like the big component of it, but there's not a lot of people talking about that. And so when I'm out there for work, the nature is front and center. You know, I'm out there, I'm always looking around. I'm barely ever looking at my feet. I'm barely ever looking at how many more miles I have to get to, I have to go to get to somewhere, Mm -hmm. something like that. You're out there to really observe the nature. Let me ask you this. So it's going to be hard for me to phrase this question properly, but, you know, being out there for work, I guess. This, this, you've probably heard, and I'm sure people listening have heard the, I don't even know what the saying is, but they've probably heard people say that like, if you turn like a passion into work sometimes, then it can kind of like ruin the fun of something that you used to, you know, just genuinely love. So again, I'm kind of butchering that, but hopefully you know what I mean. So I guess my question is, have you ever felt that happening at all? And the way I'm going to kind of relate this back to myself and the scenarios are totally different but i'm gonna at least try to a little bit make a connection there i guess is even just with like this podcast and my youtube channels sometimes for short moments it almost feels like it can kind of be work sometimes and i kind of have to take a step back and be like okay you know the like well i guess i'm not really getting paid very much for it so that's a little bit different but also i have to kind of just step back and be like okay don't let this turn into something that you're not passionate about. Don't start doing it just for the sake of doing it, I guess. So I'm going on a, a pretty long ramble now, but um, I don't know. D- did anything I just said there strike a chord? You kind of know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, there's that competing saying that if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. And that's how I feel most of the time that I'm out there. You know, when you're on your 10 mile trek back with the 80 pounds then it really does feel like work yeah but the rest of the time it really it really doesn't and i really enjoy being out there even if i have a job to do supposedly also when i'm out there i have a whole nother style of backpacking which i actually recommend to a lot of your listeners if they can pull it off which is where normally i'll hike in maybe 10 or 20 miles something like that to what i would inform a base camp basically Mm -hmm. it's where i set up all my gear And then the rest of my days of my trip, I'm really just doing day hikes out of the base camp. I'm radiating out from there, trying to cover an area, taking a whole bunch of trails. And actually, most of the time, I'm really not on trails. I'm just off trail. But that whole base camping style of just setting your stuff up and then day hiking around from there really, I think, enhances the experience. It allows you to stop thinking about, you know, how I'm going to set up my stuff tonight, where I'm going to set up my stuff tonight, how heavy your pack is, stuff like that. You get, you tend to enjoy the scenery a lot more when you do it that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think the only time I've ever really done that is in the Adirondacks. It's definitely a thing there, and maybe there's some people that do it in the White Mountains too, but for some reason, I agree with you. Like, I really don't see that many people doing it, and I guess in the in the Adirondacks, it's like, um, th- it kind of makes sense just the way the trail system is, and I don't know, maybe it doesn't make sense in other places. Like a thru-hike, for instance, obviously, yeah. that you can't do it because it's through hike not a base camp but um it's harder to do in places like you know the southern appalachians where all the mountains are linear and there's not yeah one exactly. place you can radiate out of but if you're in the sierras in the west coast or colorado or something like that you could totally pull that off definitely it's like a it's a way to experience a lot of stuff and cover a lot of ground without always having to carry a super you know heavy pack so I think that is, or or even or even like if you normally carry like a really ultralight pack, it could be a way for you to still cover a lot of ground, 
but maybe be able to bring a couple extra luxuries for camp because you're not going to be hiking that far with the weight on your back. So yeah, so exactly. I, I, I think that's pretty cool, man. Um, when you go like on non-work related backpacking trips, uh, do you like, what's your, like your setup? Do you, do you have like a lower like weight for your pack? <laughs> Sounds really awkward, but <laughs> do, you, yeah, do, so... do you not carry as much stuff when you're, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, on my non-work related trips, it sort of depends on the season or something like that. So the base weight could be, I don't know, 9 to 12 pounds, something around there. So you are going like pretty ultra light though. Yeah, yeah. You know, I used to have, I used to be even lighter. I used to have a 7 pound base weight. This was like 6 years ago before Cuban fiber was as inexpensive as it is now. But Mm -hmm. I've actually added a little more since then just because the comfort matters a bit. But yeah, you know. When I And oftentimes I'm kind of guilty of when I go backpacking just for fun, I try and pick places with cool rocks anyway. <laughs> you I love really rocks, dude. It. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I do, man. Well, that's good to hear that you're not really getting burnt out on like backpacking in terms of your job or anything like that. Um, no, I, I really wish I could do more of it. Like if I could do this, you know, six months out of the year or something like that, I would totally be doing that. You that's know. awesome dude I'm, I'm a little bit jealous to be honest like where like where are you going and I, I don't mean um let me say this better i don't even mean like literally like the specific locations like oh i'm going to this trailhead or this mountain or whatever i just mean like in terms of the actual terrain that you're covering are you going to like trails and then doing this stuff are you like bushwhacking off trail you're going to like specific uh environments and things like that yeah, so if I'm out there for work, I'll normally start on a trail, get pretty far in, maybe set up camp, and then I'm totally bushwhacking the next five plus days that I'm out there. That's awesome. So yeah, it's it's not very leave no trace. I wouldn't suggest everyone go out and do that. If it's just like one or two people, it's not such a big deal. But you have to wear longer, like I have to wear pants, even if I don't want to wear pants, you know, because of the brush. But another, a good thing about it is you see way more wildlife that way you see an order of magnitude more critters out there when you are not on trail because most of those animals know that there's people on the trail Mm -hmm. and unless they're scavengers or they're trying to get food from people they would normally avoid the people on the trail so i've seen you know hundreds of mountain goats various other creatures plenty of bears plenty of like pine martens and other things that are a little bit harder to see out there wait plenty of what Pine, pine a pine martin. It's a it's a mammal in the Sierras. They're really cute. Google it, man. Pine martin. martin. It's a type of we. It's related to the weasel, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're normally oh, they really hard to cute. see because they're up in trees and things like that. Plenty of pikas, plenty of marmots, or is it called pikas? I don't, I, I, know, I also I don't know what it is either. But I also learned about those on an on a previous episode of Trip Tales too. Because I'm not a I'm not a West Coast guy. I guess speaking speaking of that, we talked about this before we started recording. But uh, you're you, I just for everybody listening, you're based out of the uh, the L.A. area. Yeah, I'm in L.A. right now. What um like what is there for hiking like in that area? I'll be honest, I don't know a goddamn thing about Los Angeles. So before I moved here, I thought that. My hiking days were like effectively over or I was only going to get out when I could go to the Sierras in the high summer. And I was totally wrong about that. There is tons of hiking all around L.A. and I had no idea beforehand. So the closest thing is Angeles National Forest has hundreds and hundreds of miles of trail. The PCT goes through Angeles National Forest. Even within the city of L.A., there's hundreds of miles of trails 
via various parks and things like that. And this isn't like Central Park in New York. These parks are just mountainous areas that they cool. couldn't build city on, so they made it a park. Damn. <laughs> yeah, so like Griffith Park is the famous one around here with tons and tons of trails. Angeles Fort National Forest, tons and tons of trails. If you want to drive a little bit farther away, there's tons of desert hiking you can do. And if you want to drive a little farther, then you can go to the Sierras and hike in there in some really world-class terrain up there. So there's tons of hiking opportunities out here. You know, I've been out here five years and I haven't even touched maybe 5% of it. Wow. That's really yeah. cool. I've I've never thought of Los Angeles as like a like a hiking city because honestly, I'm always like looking for various locations in the states that you can like work in like a my type of job, like a software job. So it has to be yeah. a relatively big city, and then still be able to have like easy access to hiking. So I don't, I, I don't I'll, I I don't really see myself moving to LA anytime soon. But that is uh that's that's cool. Noted. Noted. Yeah, the only caveat is that in the summer, it can be really, really hot. Yeah. And so the hiking kind of sucks then. You have to go pretty high up in elevation to have a decently not hot hike. Notice I didn't say cool hike. I said not hot <laughs> hike. And so that's the only real caveat here. Plus the traffic's bad, although not right now as of this recording. <laughs> that's what I always hear people say about Los Angeles is the, the traffic and stuff. How well, like, I, um? oh, sorry, go ahead. I'll say the traffic isn't as bad as some other cities it's just way less predictable than other cities you oh, think it's just rush hours but somehow it seems to be sort of constantly there <laughs> yeah well that's no fun there's not much traffic to speak of here in vermont i'll tell you that sounds great man i know um how close are you to like the pct then so if i got in my car i could drive half an hour and i would be at a pct trailhead oh wow that's super close actually damn yeah, so I've been slowly piecing together the PCT in Southern California, and I think I'll piece together, and I've done some other pieces elsewhere in California, Oregon, and Washington. So I don't think I'm going to through-hike the PCT because I don't really want to re-hike these desert parts. Mm-hmm. I'll just section it together over time, something like that. That's cool, man. That's that's yeah. really cool, honestly. Now, I know you, obviously, yeah, you haven't through-hiked the PCT, but on the AT, for instance, as you know, people will often take side trips to like some of the bigger cities on the East coast, like DC or New York or whatever. Do people, I guess LA would still be relatively early on in the PCT, I think, but do people take like side trips to any of this, to LA or to any of the cities in in California, much like they do um, to the major cities on the East coast when you're hiking the AT? I mean, I'm sure they do. I honest, since I live here, it doesn't feel like a side trip to me. Right. Right. So, you know, you'd have to ask Darwin or somebody like that what they did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i'm just yeah. i'm just curious because like i want to do the pct someday and i don't i don't have a huge desire to be messing around in the major cities but if if the second biggest city in the united states is like pretty close i don't know it might be might be kind of fun but anyways i'm sure somebody listening is like the pct you can let me know back to your back to your job and how that relates to backpacking um i guess you might have touched on this a little bit in some of your previous answers, but how, if at all, has your job changed the way you view backpacking, I guess, and or or even how has it influenced your backpacking trips um, when you're not backpacking for work? Yeah, so firstly, I guess when I am out backpacking, as a result of my job, I think I appreciate some of the landscapes a lot more. You know, a lot of people hike to get a view, but all they see is 
mountains out there and things like that. But mm-hmm. anytime I get up to a view, I'm like flooded with information basically about how these mountains have gotten there and things like that, what I'm seeing on them, what rocks they're made of, things like that, how they interact with the watershed or the plants or the animals, things like that. And I guess it gives me a little bit of a better appreciation for it. You know, it's not like I'm up there just analyzing like a computer or something like that. Like yeah. I still think it's a kick-ass view or something like that. But yeah, so when I walk around, you know, I think if I'm ever like climbing up a hill or something like that and you stop to catch your breath because you're tired or something like that, then I'll just look down and look at the rocks around me or look at the plants, try and ID some plants, stuff like that. And it actually, it really adds more to the hike, I think, just to know a little bit about the natural world around you. You don't need to be an expert like me to appreciate nature. You just got to, you know, look at it and try to appreciate it. Dude, so hearing you say all this stuff, I'll be honest, I don't know really anything about the the nature around me usually when I'm hiking. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty good with, like, geography. Like, I'll usually have a better understanding, I feel like, than a lot of people I'm hiking with about, like, the location that I'm in and how it relates to, you know, the mountains or other you know, the the cities and stuff that are around. But as far as the actual, like, plants and rocks and trees and shit, like, I don't know, goddamn thing. So I guess where where would you start? So obviously, you know, like you just said, you know, you don't have to know a ton and, like, you know, do it professionally to be able to derive some enjoyment from knowing that stuff. But, like, just for someone like me who's completely ignorant, where should I start to kind of be able to learn about that stuff and be able to, I guess, have it, you know, help enhance my backpacking experience. I would say the easiest place to start is to go out and buy a book of flowers, like flowers from your area, because flowers are probably the easiest nature thing to identify. And whether you're East Coast or West Coast or somewhere in the middle, there's going to be a flower book for your area that'll literally just have pictures upon pictures of flowers sorted by color. And you can Bring that along with you and try and ID some plants that way. Something like that mm-hmm. would be a really easy way to start. You know, rocks are a bit harder. I would say a lot of insects are pretty easy, like caterpillars and butterflies. If you just take a picture, you can go home and ID it on the internet, stuff like that. Um, birding is pretty hard. I have not even gotten anywhere close to being good at birding yet, but there are definitely people that are totally into it, and I'm sure there's resources to get you into that. Mm-hmm. It does, it does sound enticing, I gotta be honest, because especially for a lot of other people, like, you know, you know, yourself, honestly, and or if assuming you didn't, you know, already have this knowledge, just people who are experienced backpackers, that could be, like, one of the things that kind of helps shake up the routine after X amount of thousand of miles or whatever, you know, because eventually, you know, you do kind of, and I've talked about this before more in relation to, like, photography and taking video and stuff, but... I just the the concept of bringing some new even like a sub hobby into backpacking I guess um I feel like is a good way to kind of shake up the routine so I'm definitely interested in doing that I am a little bit hesitant cuz I feel like just with my attention span it'd be kind of hard for me to like just sit there and like try to look, look at flowers and stuff so I guess I don't know like what is it like maybe if you could just give a couple of specific examples, I guess, like what is it about like some of these plants and some of these rocks and stuff that really like interests you so much? You know, that's a good question. It's, I know it's a tough one. Right. It, it is a tough one. I guess it's just the fact that, you know, when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of nature around me. Like most okay. people in this country, I grew up in a parking lot town. 
Like this is the, these are the kind of places where humans don't exist with like this is the kind of place where humans don't coexist with nature. They displace nature, right? Let's let's cut down the forest and pave it over. Let's burn the fields and we need to build more parking lots, you know. And neither of my parents were outdoorsy people at all. We I had never gone backpacking before college. The most we'd ever do is car camping like once a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. When you're living in these parking lot towns, it's just nature is way more beautiful than that. And I think that every time I'm out hiking, I'm just so glad that I'm not living that life anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's partly why I just find all of it so fascinating. No, dude, that makes you know? that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, so if you, if you didn't grow up... Um, backpacking and if your parents didn't get you into it and you know you weren't super exposed to it from a young age what made you decide you wanted to through hike the Appalachian Trail so I don't really know why I wanted to through hike the Appalachian Trail to this day I don't really know why I wanted to through hike the Appalachian Trail I feel yeah I kind of feel like a jerk when I ask that question because I've had people ask me that question like a ton of times too and I never really know like how to answer it too but I guess just what got you into it I guess like just tell your tell the story of like the uh the beginning and, and the idea the inspiration Well I was in college and I was a geology major so we were going outside on these field trips and things like that but that early into the degree you don't really do any backpacking but I knew that it was coming later on in my career, basically. So I started to do some backpacking out in Indiana near where I went to school. So that's the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area. It is not a very good wilderness area, but it but it was there. It existed. It was a place where you could backpack. And I went out, did some overnights and things like that, found I liked it, and just did more and more of them. And always in the back of my mind, there was the AT out there, right, the ultimate East Coast backpacking trip. Um, so over the course of my college career, over the course of my time in college, I was sort of doing all these hiking and then eventually just decided, yeah, when I graduate, I'm going to have some time in between my next thing. So I should just do the AT. And I started training for that pretty, pretty intensely, both men- both mentally and physically. All right. So before we get into the AT stuff some more, um, at the beginning of the episode, we had, and I honestly, I think it was you that had mentioned, uh, talking about how people can get into like your line of work and how people can, you know, make backpacking a career or something, or or at least, you know, a job and and, and something like that. So yeah, before, before I get us too sidetracked here, um, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Cause I'm always curious to hear about that. And even more importantly, I'm sure there's people that are listening that are maybe don't have a career or looking to change career or something like that. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So if you want to work outside, there's basically, there's two big tracks you can take and then a few subdivisions. So firstly, there's plenty of blue collar work outside, right? There's plenty of, you know, manual labor jobs and things like that, where you're just outside all day. I used to have some of those jobs and I didn't mind them at all. There's nothing wrong with working blue collar The only thing is that none of those jobs are going to pay you to backpack, right? Mm -hmm. So if you really want to get paid to backpack, there's broadly three categories you can try and go into. One is research and sciencey things. That's what I do. So you could be a geologist like me. You could be a biologist. Lots of biologists go out and backpack for long periods of time. 
You can be some sort of environmental scientist, water quality person, things like that. A lot of those sciencey fields will get you out and backpacking for some of the year, every year. There's no job in the world that'll get you out there 24-7. Right, right. Except maybe a travel photographer or professional backpacking YouTuber, something like that. <laughs> Good luck, Kyle. <laughs> I'm going to be the next Darwin. No, I'm not. Sure, not sure. Even close. <laughs> you never know, man. But the other two categories, one, you can try being a ranger, like a park ranger or something oh, like that. Oh, true, yeah. Those jobs are very hard to get, and that's because a lot of people want to get them. So if you want to be a ranger, I haven't gone through the process, but I think you need to volunteer for some period of time before they'll even start paying you to do it. And a lot of rangers don't do a lot of backpacking. A lot of them are there for law enforcement and enforcing the rules yeah, and things like that. Yeah, I was going to like say, that. you have to be the bad guy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but some of them do go out and backpack quite a lot. And I would say all, some of the rangers definitely get out and backpack more than I do. Then the third option is if you want to be a guide in the sort of eco-tourism or just the general outdoorsy tourism industry. And that is the only job, I think, where you really don't do a lot of desk work at all and you're just out there backpacking a whole bunch. Right. Um, it has its caveats. You know, you're paid per job. I don't. Very few of them make huge salaries, positions, or anything like that. Mm. But if you want to get into that, you can either go on some guided trips already, and maybe they'll like you and invite you to guide some of your own. That gets expensive. If you're like in high school right now, if you're in early college, or if you think about going back to college, most colleges in this country have outdoor recreation majors, outdoor tourism majors, something like that. And that's in state schools, that's in private colleges, and you don't need to be on the West Coast for that. It's basically anywhere in the country. You can basically major in being outside. It's something I didn't know until well too late into my college career that you could do that. But that is an option for people, and that's probably the easiest way to get into the whole outdoor recreation tourism industry. Do a lot of those jobs require people to have degrees? Because I feel like it'd be... I don't know. I feel like it'd be more valuable if you just had like a lot of experience versus, you know, some some four-year degree, you know? Yeah. So the degree is basically a way to get experience in just four years. Like if you already have a lot of backpacking experience under you, then you probably don't need the degree. But if you're only like 20 years old, you don't have this degree and you don't have a lot of experience, then you're probably not going to get a guide job very easily. You probably could in some of the uh, less glamorous guidings, like I don't know, canoe guiding on some random river in the Midwest or something <laughs> like that, uh, which I know a lot of people who have done that and actually liked it a lot, although it doesn't pay very much at all. But, you know, if you like it, you like it, you know? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Dude, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, I've not, yeah, I, I haven't really put too much thought into any of that stuff, to be honest with you. And it makes sense. Like, I'm, I'm not really looking to be, you know, a full-time outdoorsy person like that. Um, I do like my day job very much, but... It's always it's always good to think about for sure, especially if you're interested in like environmental science or geology, something like that. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with just being a weekend warrior. You know, not everyone can work outside, and just because I work outside doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else who just has a day job and hikes out on the weekends and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you can still do through hikes and still have you know normal jobs and stuff like that. You just got to be flexible. And exactly. helps to be young and not have a family and shit too. But anyways, because um, that's every time I say, like I've said before, uh, like, oh, like anyone can through hike and you hear that a lot. And every time I say that, people are always like, well, you know, 
I guess technically anyone can thrive, but let's be honest, if you have a, a family and you're 40 years old, you probably shouldn't be through hiking i guess or it's right it's really difficult so i, I always that is that is a valid point so i like to acknowledge that but anyways so, so one more thing is if you want to travel to the greatest variety of places possible the research track is basically the best way to do that so you know i didn't know this going into it but now that I, as a geologist i've been all over north america i've been to the arctic i've been to the antarctic i've been to iceland and all of this was for work. I didn't have to pay to go to any of these places. Work was paying for it. So if you really want to get out and see the most of the world, the research track is the way to go there. Interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's good to know, man. Let's talk a little bit about the Appalachian Trail. So we kind of know why you did it now. But again, I mentioned this at the very beginning of the episode. Uh, you, you told me you had a pretty miserable experience throughout the whole thing, it sounds like. And you yeah, still did yeah. it. Like, you didn't quit. But um, I guess, yeah, I'm just going to open it up right there. Uh, why was it so miserable? So there were two main problems. One was mental, and then I had a few major physical issues that happened through the hike. So I'll just start at the beginning, right? So you start at Springer Mountain. You're excited. You're a little intimidated. There's a lot of trail in front of you that you need to go to. This is if you're going Nobo, obviously. And so my first day... I got to the top of Blood Mountain because I had trained a whole lot before I got on the AT. And that Blood Mountain climb, it's, you know, it's not the hardest climb on the AT, but it's definitely not the easiest climb either. And so I was pretty tired when I got to the top of it, but I got to the top of Blood Mountain and I felt absolutely nothing. I didn't feel accomplished. <laughs> I didn't feel satisfied with what I had done or anything like that. I felt completely neutral. And my only thought was, well, that's one down. I guess I have several hundred to go. Yeah. And so my first day, I got all the way to Neil Gap. And Damn, dude. Yeah. So the second day, my feet felt absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. Because it's like 31 miles in one gonna say, day. I was going to say, that's a good chunk. Right? And so the second day, I only got like six miles in. Because my feet were just ag were just in agony. And so six miles the next day, day three, I hike another 30 miles because my feet were better again. Then it's six miles the next day. And then the day, what is it? Five, I hike another 30 miles. This is how I got my uh, trail name, Icarus. So for those that don't know, Icarus is a character in Greek mythology. His dad makes for Icarus a pair of wings made out of wax and feathers. And so his dad gives the wings to Icarus and he tells him, now, Icarus, you can fly with these, just don't fly too close to the sun because they're going to melt and then you'll like fall and die. And Icarus is a overconfident young man. So, of course, the first thing he does is fly way too close to the sun, trying to see how high he can go. His wings melt. He falls into the sea and dies. And that's the story in like 10 seconds. Well, when I first started the AT, my first like week or two, that was my hiking style, right? 30 miles, six miles, 30 miles, six miles, flying too close, dying, flying too close, dying. And that's how I got the trail name. But to continue the story, so after Blood Mountain, you, sub you summit several other mountains. And every single time I'd summon a mountain, once again, I would feel basically nothing. Because they're not easy, but they're not exactly hard either. I mean, all I did was put one foot in front of the other 
So each individual step's not that hard. And if you just do a bunch of not that hard things, you eventually get to the top. So I didn't really feel very accomplished. And every time I got to the top of something, I thought, well, I have many more of these to go, right? Well, this is a horrible mentality to have because after mile after mile of not feeling any reward for going another mile after mile, Mm -hmm. you start to question why in the world you're out there, you know? So occasionally people would ask me on the trail, why are you doing the AT? And I'd say, well, I don't really know why I'm here. And they'd say, really? You don't have like a reason for being out here? And I said, no, not really. And some of them would follow up with, well, why are you still out here then? (laughs) And I'd say, well, I don't really know why I'm out here. And they'd say, well, are you having a good time? Uh, No, I'm not. I'm not having a good time. Right. I'm not feeling any like sense of accomplishment for anything that I'm doing here. I'm just like walking, you know, and they'd say, well, are you just out here because you really want to finish? And initially I said yes. But after each summit where I didn't really feel any sense of accomplishment, I stopped caring if I was going to finish or not. If I didn't make it to Katahdin, I didn't really give a shit, quite frankly. Um, So eventually I just had to say, well, no, I don't really care if I finish. And they didn't understand why I was out there. And quite frankly, I didn't understand why I was out there. I don't understand it either. Just yeah. to say that. <laughs> I mean, to this day, I still don't get why I was out there. I never really felt like I wanted to quit, though. I mean, if I quit, I was going to go home and sit on my ass the rest of the summer because I didn't have anything else planned. So if I'm not having fun out here and I'm not having fun at home, then maybe I should just stay out here. I Mm -hmm. guess. But after, you know, I got to mile 500, a big mile, right? Once again, felt no sense of accomplishment. I couldn't think of, I couldn't appreciate what I had done. I was only thinking of what I still had to do. And eventually I thought, well, maybe I just need to hike a steeper mountain. I need to hike something really hard because then I will actually have accomplished something, you know, like each individual mountain, a lot of, there's a ton of peaks on the AT. Not all of them are really hard, but some of them are really hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember getting to the top of Roan High Knob, which is a tall mountain, really tall. And at least on one side, it's really steep. I got to the top, it took forever and I still didn't feel anything. And at that point I knew that the rest of this trail, I was not going to feel really any sense of, accomplishment accomplishment until maybe Katahdin. So that was the poor mindset I had throughout the entire trail was not thinking of what I had done, but always thinking of what I still had to do. Mm-hmm. Like my mind was on Maine the entire time and I could never even think about Georgia or Tennessee or things like that. That's That's so interesting that you say that because this was the mindset that I was trying so hard to avoid when I was on yeah, my hike. And you did a great job of that from the sound of it. You did a great job of avoiding that mindset, and I think your hike really benefited from and, that. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot, not not in a, not for a while now, but uh, I've talked about it in previous episodes, and I've talked about it in YouTube videos as well. But I, I literally did the polar opposite, dude. I was so hyper-focused on how far I'd come, and I literally trained my brain to not think about how far I had left to go. And, you know, for maybe for some people, that's a little bit extreme. Like you can still walk that line a little bit better than I felt like I could have. But that was like my mindset, dude. I, I, I refuse to let myself 
think about how far I had left to go. And as a result, every time I made it to like a, a accomplishment, like a, a thousand mile marker, 500 Harper's Ferry, um, anytime I made it to something like that, I was always super stoked. And I, and the reason I did this is because I had heard examples, you know, maybe not quite to the extreme that you just described, you know, your scenario, but uh-huh. I had heard examples of people who made it to like Harper's Ferry, for instance. And then, you know, I feel like naturally for someone who doesn't know that much about through hiking, they'd be like, oh, they must feel really good. They're halfway. But I, I heard about people who made it to Harper's Ferry and then were like, shit, I'm only halfway. You know, I right. still have to do all of that again. And so I was like, I don't want that to be me. And so that's why I was so like hyper focused on that. So that's pretty incredible, dude. And honestly, um, thank you for being willing to say this stuff because it'd be real easy. And I'm sure people do this. Maybe not that often, but I don't know. It'd be real easy to, you know, have a miserable experience, but then go home and tell all your friends and family and tell the world on social media, like, oh my God, it was such a great experience and all that stuff. So I appreciate you being so like candid about this. Yeah. Well, when I went home, actually, I'll wait for the end because there's a lot more to this story. So in Virginia, I had my first, what I would call major uh, health injury thing where I almost lost my eye. So basically... I had been wearing contacts throughout the trail and for anyone who's through hiked the AT and glasses, you know that they get really nasty and they're really hard to clean. And so I had a pretty weak prescription. I could wear daily contacts, which just means you don't need to reuse them. You use them once per day and then you just throw them away basically. Mm -hmm. And that had worked really great for me all the way into Virginia. And then one day in Virginia, I went to take out the contacts in my right eye and I looked down at my fingertip where the contact's supposed to be, and only half the contact is on my fingertip. Ooh. And what I didn't know at the time is that the contact needs to stay whole to stay centered on your eye. So I blinked once, and the other half of the contact started swimming around in my eye. And it felt absolutely terrible. It felt like the thickest hair you could possibly imagine is just Ugh. stuck in your eye. And I couldn't get it out. I was feeling around with my nasty hiker fingers, and I couldn't fit, and I couldn't get it out. I had hand sanitizer, but it didn't help. And so I hiked for like another hour trying to just blink to get it out. You know yeah. how you would do with an eyelash? Yeah. And it wasn't getting out. And so I tried the front-facing camera on my phone to try and like see if I could find the half of the contact, and I could not see it with the phone. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is probably really not good. And I don't have a mirror with me, so I'll just hike to the next road, and I'll find a parked car, and I'll use the the side mirror on the car. Yeah. And so I hike to the next road, and there's no car parked there. So I hike another 20 miles to the next road, and there's no car parked there. And I hike another 20 miles to the next road, and there's no car parked there. This is over several days. Yeah. And as time goes on, that eye is getting more and more agitated. It started swelling started like leaking fluid and stuff like that. It was really not good. And so eventually I got to a road crossing where there was a parked car and I spent half an hour in front of this side mirror just trying to find the bit of the contact and I just could not find it. And I started Googling it and they're like, well, if you if this happens to you and the contact rolls behind your eye, you need to get surgery to get it removed. Jesus Christ. So I hitchhiked into town or actually I didn't hitchhike. I called a trail angel and got a ride into town and I got into this rat trap motel by the freeway in Bland, Virginia. (laughs) Yeah. And 
I go to the bathroom and I open up my eyelids and I take my tweezers and I start fishing around for about 45 minutes. Jesus Christ. Trying to find this bit of contact. And I eventually do find it and I pull out that half of the contact and my eye instantly felt better. And over the next like two days I kept hiking, but the eye eventually like recovered, right? This was totally unforeseen injury. I'd never heard of anyone having it before. Um, But ever since then I purchased a camp, like a tiny camping mirror and with that, I was able to get the contacts in and out just fine. But I had this like major eye issue on top of the whole, I don't even know why I'm out here. What, what the fuck am I doing out here thing? Mm-hmm. And that really didn't help. So fast forward to New Jersey is the next major thing. By New Jersey, my mentality hadn't really changed at all. I don't know why I'm out here. What the fuck am I doing out here? That hadn't changed. I hadn't found some new purpose for being there. I wasn't trying to find myself. I already had a job lined up when I left, things like that. I wasn't trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. I had no reason to be there, really. Um, And the entire time I was thinking, well, maybe I'll get a sense of accomplishment if I climb something really hard, right? Really hard. So that's I was kind of looking forward to the whites, right? Because the whites are really hard, so everyone was telling me. Mm -hmm. I got to New Jersey, and I started noticing that trail angels were leaving water by the side of the road. And I was like, oh, there must be a drought or something like that. However, every time I got to a road crossing, all the water was gone. And so I had hiked 25 miles one day in New Jersey, and I got into a shelter, and it was the first time that I saw a water source in that entire 25 miles that day. Damn, and for those listening that might you know, be used to West Coast, that's extremely uncommon on the AT. That never happened to me. Any, not even close to that, that many miles yeah. of that water. So, you know, I started that day with one liter because everywhere else on the AT, you can gather basically oh, yeah. whenever Dude, you want. I like hardly you even know? carried water for a lot of sections. Right. So I got to the shelter. It had running water, um, but it, the water really didn't look right. You know, I looked down on it. It was brown. And I asked the other hikers at the shelter, like, is this water Okay. And they're like, yeah, it's just tannins. And tannins are this little colorant that comes from the roots of plants. They're like, yeah, it's just tannins. It's not a big deal. But I was looking down at that water. It was flowing directly past the privy. And oh, it it looked a, it looked like it was flowing a little too slowly. Like it was a little too viscous to be just water. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I was so damn thirsty. Just so damn thirsty. So I double filtered it through a bandana and then I double aquamirrored it and I gave it a bunch of time for all the aquamirror to react. And then I drank it and the next day it was very clear that that water was not going to go well <laughs> at all. Like at all. Even with all the filtering? It, yeah. Like I think there was beyond saving quite frankly because I think I had to drink it anyway because I was so dehydrated. I didn't know if I was going to make it through the night without water. But, you know, the next day I found more water sources that day, but I was just shitting my guts out for the rest of the day. Like anything that I ate, anything that I drank just went out, you know, within an hour, something like that. You can cut this part out if you don't want people to uh, oh, dude. hear it. People know. People know how it goes sometimes out there. <laughs> yeah, this was definitely I've drank some bad water before, but this is the worst I've ever drank. And Damn. I was like that in that state for a solid week. And then another week after that, I would say I was recovering from that with still some bowel issues. So by the time I had gotten to Jersey, I weighed 
maybe 150 pounds, and I started at 190 pounds. And for reference, I'm six foot two, and I didn't have a lot of fat to start with. So once I drank that bad water, I started losing even more weight. And I didn't have any more fat to lose, so I started losing muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what you want on the AT or any long trail at all, is to start losing muscle mass like that. And I would try and eat food to make up for that, but it would just not stay in the stomach long enough, you know, to for to get those calories out of it. So by the end of the two weeks, I was down in the 130-pound range, something like that. Oh, wow. I weighed, Damn, yeah, I weighed, dude. I weighed myself at a hostel in Connecticut. And so I'm in this hostel bunk room, and I take off my shirt, and the other hiker in the bunk room audibly gasps like... <gasps> And I'm like, what? Dude, what's wrong, crazy. dude? Is everything okay? And he's like, are you okay? And I said, I mean, I've been better. What's up? He said, you look like shit. And that's a big thing for another hiker to say because yeah. a bunch of people look thin out on that trail, right? But to be like shocked at the thinness of another person, especially another through hiker, is really something, I guess. So I had no idea how thin I had gotten until I weighed myself and looked in a mirror, basically, which is the first time since that Jersey incident mm. that I looked in a mirror. And I really had not done well at all there. And keep in mind that this is on top of the whole, I'm getting no reward for anything because I don't feel accomplished when I climb anything, right? And so soon after leaving that hostel, I had recovered from the bad water, but I started feeling sick again. And I started feeling like I had the flu, except my joints really hurt too. And I knew what that was because I had oh, had boy. it before. I had Lyme disease. Like Bro, right after. What the fuck? I know, I know. I had Lyme disease before, before the AT, uh, as a result of some field work in New England. So I knew what I had at that point. I knew I had Lyme disease and I was feeling absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible. And I lost you know, even more muscle mass, things like that. I could at least eat food this time, but it was really, really not good, you know, and it was already pretty hot up there and you had the fever on top of it. And most people, Lyme disease symptoms are basically a severe flu. And for some people you get side effects like uh, cardio, like heart issues, or in my case, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease gets in your joints and it starts to really cause a lot of joint pain. Um, and that's what I had. So after a week or two of that, I had recovered from the Lyme disease. I had gone into town, gotten the doxycycline antibiotic, but I was in absolutely horrible shape right about when I was going to hit right before I hit the whites. Basically, mm -hmm. I was in absolutely terrible shape. And this entire time, I had no idea why I was out on the trail and I had no idea why I was still out on the trail, why I wanted to keep going. But the whole time I thought, well, when I get to the whites and things are actually hard, I'm going to feel this sense of accomplishment when I climb things, and that'll be, you know, a positive experience. Well, now I had gotten exactly what I wanted, even more so, right? Now every step is pure. Now every step is the hardest step I've ever basically taken. And now every summit is the hardest summit I've ever done. And I got to the top of Musilaki, and I still didn't feel anything. I still didn't feel like I accomplished anything mm -hmm. by getting to the top of it. Because all I could think about was, I have more whites to do. I have all of Maine to do. I have Katahdin to do still. And so, 
I, you know, I did the whites and I took my time through the whites trying to recover a bit, but I still didn't get that satisfaction that I thought I would get when I, you know, first started out on the AT, basically. Mm-hmm. So I did the whites. I did Southern Maine, which in my mind was harder than the whites, actually. I but, agree. Yeah. And I get to Katahdin. I finally got into Katahdin. I'm ready to climb Katahdin. And for the first time, there's not like more trail that I have to think about, right? I'm just going to climb Katahdin and that's it. And I got to the top. I got on that sign. I got the picture of me smiling on the sign because everyone does that. But I didn't feel happy to be done. I didn't, I was thinking, I looked back on the trail I had done and how unhappy I was and how unpleasant it was for me that whole time. And it really sort of like ruined the finishing experience too, basically. So that there's no happy ending here, basically. You know, when I got off the trail, I thought that the AT sucked, basically. I thought I wanted the AT to be really steep, really physically hard in that way. And it was really hard in a whole bunch of other ways, at least for me. And I thought that was the trail's fault. But after, you know, a couple months of sitting at home and being away from it, you know, I came to the realization that it was not the trail's fault at all. There's nothing wrong with the trail. My bad experience was directly a result of my bad mentality from the start and a few unfortunate incidents that happened to me, basically. And there's nothing wrong with the AT at all. The AT can be a great trail if you go into it with the right mindset and if you happen to avoid drinking nasty Jersey water or getting lime, you know. And the problem was me the whole time. And it took leaving the trail to really realize that. Dude. That's like, <laughs> so that's, there's, nev- that's there's, the... there's never been an episode of Trail Tales like this before. That's crazy, <laughs> dude. And yeah. and I, again, I already said this, but like, I'm glad you're willing to like talk about this. And I'm glad you, honestly, like the thing I'm the most glad about is the fact that you were, a, you had the uh, self-awareness, I guess, to realize after some time that the issue was, or, you know, part of the issue, a big part of the issue was, you know, your attitude rather than the trail itself. Cause I just feel like a lot of people would experience something like that or more realistically, they would hike a, a portion of the trail. They would start the trail, not like it. And then they would leave and then they right. would be like, it, it's the trail, you know, they, they wouldn't have the self-awareness to be like, okay, maybe I could have done things differently. Right. Myself, and admittedly, so. when I was on the trail, I really didn't have that self-awareness. You know, it took leaving to do that. And I don't know why I didn't, quit the trail earlier. I still don't know why. And to this day, I don't know if I'm glad I did the trail or not glad I did the trail. I definitely don't regret doing it though. Despite my poor experience, I don't regret doing it. I think I'm a much mentally stronger person today because of it, but I still don't know if that means that it was worth doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Damn dude. Was that like, was that like your, your story basically? (laughs) For the end? No, I've got a, a a totally different story for you. All right, dude. Damn, we're gonna we're gonna have to do another episode sometime because I feel like I could I could go in. I feel like I could do a whole episode just 
analyzing your hike there. But <laughs> alas, we are getting to the end. Uh, so that's that's crazy, man. That's crazy. I feel like I'm going to have to give like a little, I don't know, not a warning, but like a, just like a little heads up in the intro, you know, be like, hey, this is not, the part, the second half of this episode is not, you know, all fun and games. So Here, I don't know. I'll that's, give you, I'll say a little warning and you can splice it in if you want. <laughs> no, that's oh. all right, dude. I'll, I'll just, I'll, right. just, I'll just do it. All um, right. But no, it, it's, it's, I don't mean that in a bad way though. Like it's, it's still a good thing. Um, cause like I said, uh-huh. nobody's ever, honestly, not even just on trail toes, but I've never really talked to a hiker that's said anything like that before. So that's pretty unreal, dude. Um, I mean, everyone gets the Virginia blues, as they say, where you kind of say, oh, it's the same shit, different mountain. Right. And, but I don't know of anyone who's had that literally since day one. Right. And that's, that's totally different. And one of the things I wanted to say is that, you know, you're going to, on, on, on any through hike, you're going to have hard times. It's not going to be fun the entire time. In fact, a lot of it's probably not going to be fun, but the experience overall shouldn't be negative. Like it sounds like yours was. So I think that's like the, the key difference there. And, and one of the things I always tell people when people ask for advice about like the mental side of through hiking, I always tell them have a reason to hike. Like I always, I always tell them like, know why you're out there. And yeah. you know, for a lot of people, that's a specific reason. Like I'm hiking for, you know, X reason. And for some people that isn't as specific, like for me, I couldn't tell you like one specific reason why I was hiking, but like, I knew, I knew like why, like I knew like that it felt right for me to be out there, I guess. Um, but for you, it sounds like you didn't have that reason and you, you just didn't like, you just didn't need to be out there. Like, I don't know. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Well, I didn't have that reason, but I didn't quit either. And it still perplexes me to this day. <laughs> well, dude, let's uh, let's get into another story then. What you got for us? So this is a, how would I put it? This is a story of a town gone wrong, a town supply gone wrong. So I was almost to Shenandoah National Park and I had reached the southern border of the park. And I realized that, you know, I have like a couple days of food, but that's probably not enough to get me all the way through the Shenies. So the plan was to hitchhike into, I think it's Waynesboro, Virginia, mm-hmm. go to the Kroger, get a resupply, hitchhike out, you know, like in and out one hour, two hours, something like that. So I get to the road crossing to go into Waynesboro, and this is my first time hitchhiking ever. Really? Right? You made it that far without hitchhiking? Yeah, yeah. I had tried and planned it so that I would never have to hitchhike, but it, things don't go to plan, as right. you know. And so I stick my thumb out and while I'm hit while I'm sticking my thumb out I'm thinking okay a car is going to pull up I'm going to talk to the driver a little bit first and get a feel for it before I get in the car you taught you covered this in your hitchhiking video mm-hmm. that this is the right way to do it so I stick my thumb out I picked a good spot a spot where someone can pull over and my thumb was out there for five minutes nobody 10 minutes nobody 20 minutes nobody's even pulling over right I'm out there for 45 minutes when a bright yellow Ford like F-350 pulls over. <laughs> and bright yellow. Dude, and I, I had a friend in college who had that exact truck. I, I called it the school bus. <laughs> right. So I walk up to the window and the window cracks down just like, you know, half an inch. And I hear a voice from inside the car. And it says, 
get in the back, boy. I ain't got all day. Oh, boy. <laughs> and something in me just, like, didn't question it. I just jumped in the bed of the truck immediately. They, I didn't even see this guy. The windows were tinted. And I jump in the bed of the truck, and he just, like, guns it out of there, out of the pullout. And we're going down the road, and I think it's, like, a straight shot into Waynesboro, but this guy starts, like, making some turns oh, and things geez. like that. And we pull into this abandoned parking lot. And he stops the car, and he opens the middle window. You know how some of those pickup yeah, trucks yeah. have the middle in the back. He opens the middle window, and he says, "Get in the front, boy. I want to talk to you." <laughs> so I I get in the front, and the truck has this. The, the driver is this guy. I would say he's in his late fifties, early sixties. I get in the front, and he pulls out, and he starts. He just starts talking, 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 talking. He talks about how he used to be like on the city council of Waynesboro and now he runs like a bush hogging business or something like that. <laughs> and we're driving into town and after talking to him for a little while, you know, he had a thick accent, but otherwise like, you know, he had a thick accent, but he was actually seemed kind of fine. And we pass, we get into town, we pass by this sports bar and he says, you see that sports bar? And I'm like, yeah. He said, show up there at noon. You better. <laughs> So he drops me <laughs> off at this park in town and it's it's like 11:30 so I just I just walk to the sports bar. I leave my stuff at the park in town cuz there's a bunch of other hiker stuff there. I get to the sports bar and the the bar is totally empty. There's nobody there except one waitress waiting at the front. And I I get in and she says, "Are you a through hiker?" And I say, "Yeah, I'm a through hiker." And she says, "Okay, uh follow me." And so I follow her behind the bar like out this back door and there's this patio and on the patio are probably two dozen other through hikers <laughs> just sitting on this patio and they're all eating and drinking. And she tells me to sit down. So I sit down and they put a menu in front of me and there's no prices on the menu. So I ask one of the waitresses, I'm like, what, how much does any of this cost? And she said, Oh, it's all free. Damn. I said, it's all free. She's like, yeah, Mr. DeBose is paying for it. <laughs> and this is what they told everybody. And other hikers were asking, you know, who's Mr. DeBose? Is Mr. DeBose here? Can we thank him? Something like that. And none of the waitresses knew who Mr. DeBose was. It was just somebody who felt like paying for a meal for 25 nasty hikers. So I got a double cheeseburger where instead of buns on the cheeseburger, it's grilled cheese sandwiches. Nice. Yeah, so that was like 2,000 calories right there. And they also said that all the drinks were free, like all the alcohol and things like that. Mm -hmm. So everyone was having a great time. I'd put it that way. They were drinking the trail away, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And this goes on for probably an hour. A bunch of people are completely shit-faced drunk. And a waitress comes in and she says, sorry, sorry, um, can I have your attention? The drinks aren't free. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. <laughs> complete chaos. Complete chaos. <laughs> Food gets thrown. Everyone is yelling. Everyone's screaming. Like a bunch of – I was in the party bubble. I was in the middle of the party bubble. I had been trying to hike through it, and these people were living it up with their free drinks. Right. You know? And so they they had spent – they had drank, you know, I would say on average probably $30 of drinks per hiker or something like that Yeah. at that point. And just complete pandemonium, right? Food's getting thrown, all this stuff. And eventually it calms down. 
we try and get everyone to pay for drinks. Some people refuse to pay for drinks. Other people cover it, things like that. But all of a sudden, this bright blue school bus pulls up. Like, the back patio is adjacent to an alley, and this bright blue school bus pulls up. And this guy gets out, and he says, all right, everybody get in the bus. <laughs> and we're like, are you Mr. DeBose? And he's like, I don't know who that is. So we all get in this bus, and the bus starts driving away, and the guy starts throwing new gear at us. He just starts throwing gear randomly at people in the bus, like new platypus bottles, new Sawyer squeeze filters, things like that. And he's like, this is all paid by Mr. DeBose, whoever that oh, is. Boy. <laughs> right? We don't know where we're going. We The bus eventually stops at a movie theater. And we all get out and he says, okay, you're all going to see Jurassic World and Mr. DeBose is paying for it. <laughs> so... Fast forward 20 minutes, I'm sitting in Jurassic World, and you got to realize, you know, when you're on the AT, it's a quiet place. It's a serene place. You're there with your own thoughts and the sounds of nature and things like that. And I'm sitting in Jurassic World, and there's all these dinosaurs screaming at me <laughs> and things like that. It's the loudest thing I have heard in months, right? And I get out of Jurassic World. It wasn't a very good movie, but I get out of it, and I'm just, I just feel like a little, just a little bit shell shocked, you know? Yeah. And a, a couple other hikers decided to see Mad Max Fury Road, and they were in much worse shape than I was, <laughs> right? So we all get back in the bus. And they drive us back into town. At this point, my one-hour supply run has been like a six-hour affair or something like that. And I say, screw it. I'm just going to get a hotel room. So I get a hotel room. The next day, I don't want to hitchhike out of town again. And I look in the AWOL guide, and I see that there's a trail angel named DeBose Eggleston <laughs> in the guide. And he'll give you a shuttle to the trailhead. So... <laughs> I call the number and this lady picks up and she says, oh, do you need a ride? And I say, yeah. And she's like, okay, Mr. DeBose will be there in 10 minutes. And I'm waiting outside the hotel front office and up pulls a bright yellow Ford F-350 pickup truck <laughs> to take me back to the trailhead. And that's the story. <laughs> Wait a minute. The one part I'm confused about, why the fuck did you get in that bus? You, you didn't say what the bus, you just were like, the bus pulled up, and so we just got in it. Like, there's yeah. no explanation there? Uh, no, he, they, we just got in the bus, you know? Like, sometimes you, <laughs> I mean, when you're out on trail, you start to get a little bit more trusting of people. I'd put it that way. And sometimes that's a good thing, or sometimes that's a bad you thing. You went from not wanting to hitchhike at all to, oh yeah, I'll just get in this random fucking bus with all these drunk hikers. <laughs> Right. I mean, they can't possibly kidnap all 25 of us, right? <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. Damn, dude, that's so funny. Mr. DeBose. I don't even know if he's supposed to be the hero or the villain of this story. I'll be honest. Oh, he, was definitely the, he, he was definitely the hero. He no started doubt. out the villain, and then he was looking pretty good, and then all of a sudden the drinks weren't free, and then he was looking like the, the villain again. I was like, was Mr. DeBose like, playing all these hikers? And then so it turns out the drinks were... DeBose, all the money was coming from a church group that DeBose was part of, and they didn't apparently ah. want the drinks to be covered. Makes sense. Classic Southern United States. So I guess yeah. that makes sense. It was probably saved them a lot of money, too. So, yeah. Dude, that's funny as hell. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks for telling your story. Um, no problem. Shout out to Mr. DeBose. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that's going to do it. Do you want to plug any like social media or anything you want people to check out? 
Oh, I have a very new Instagram and YouTube account called at at on Instagram I am at hike science and on YouTube I am also hike science. So I just have videos on rocks, uh some gear stuff I'm planning to post and I don't know, nerdy hiking shit that I like. Basically. Cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Everybody go check that stuff out. Um if you have any angry DMs to send because you love DAT, uh, send them to me. Don't send them to <laughs> Kyle. It's not Kyle's fault. <laughs> That's right. No, I, I, I think people are gonna, I think people are gonna be able to take a lot away from that. Honestly, dude, I think I did. Honestly, just even as a, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, thanks so much, man. Thanks to everybody mm-hmm. listening, and uh, happy late Memorial Day. Have a good one, everybody. Mm-hmm.